Well, good morning. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. And as we open the Word of God this morning, we are reminded that we are here not to be entertained. We are not here to just go through uh, religious entertainment through conference settings, but we are here now under the Word of God, and we are here under the banner of the gospel to worship God. And so even through a conference on the subject of social justice, the Word of God is very clear. We want to finish up today, finish strongly through His Word as we look now to Scripture for an authoritative look at what our responsibility is not only as pastors, not only as elders, but also as brothers and sisters in the Lord in the context of a local church. And so I want to begin by just saying a word of thank you to this congregation, to those who have served us so well, to Tom for the invitation to be with you, for Founders Ministries. I have much respect for Founders Ministries. I stand on the shoulders of Founders Ministries for all of the work that has been done through the years within the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I come today uh, as a servant and I come today as a guest in this pulpit and I recognize that and I'm very grateful to be with you and to have been able to share conversations in the bookstore, and in the hallway, and to be able to just uh, enjoy this time together. And conferences are good for that, for us to be able to enjoy time together. But then there's the reality when we go back home and we get back into the trenches of our local churches because that's where God has called us to be. God has not called us to be uh, just roaming around from conference to conference. And so we need to thank God for the gift of the local church. So we turn to Ephesians 4. Follow along with me as I read aloud. This is the Word of God, beginning in verse number 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the, notice this, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The assignment before me on this morning is to preach on the subject that the church is God's will for your life. The church is not plan B. That is the issue. And as we consider this issue, we have this text before us and we need to consider the good gift of the local church. We need to consider the fact that God has gifted us with this gift. He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And when we consider that truth, it is a wonderful, joyful reality. I want you to consider the fact that Mount Everest is the highest peak on planet Earth, 8,848 meters. That's 29,029 feet. The cost for a permit to climb this mountain peak is about 25 grand. When you consider the fact that at about 26,000 feet, that's about 3,000 feet below the peak, you enter in what's known as the death zone. As you're approaching the summit about 3,000 feet, you enter this death zone where the oxygen level is so low that it's, that's in, it, it, you, you just reach this, this very dangerous place. It's increasingly harsh. It's very dangerous. It wasn't until 1953 in recorded history that two men from Norway, that they actually reached Everest summit. When you think about history and recorded history of all of the climbers of this mountain peak, from 1953 to 2019, just a little more than 8,000 people have made it to the top of the world. That sounds like a lot, but when you think about recorded history from 1953 to 2019, just 8,000. But all 8,000 that arrived at the top of Mount Everest never arrived there alone. They did not just get up one day and throw on some hiking boots and a little backpack and decide that they were going to hike to the top of the world. It doesn't work like that. You see, the way that they arrived at the top of Mount Everest was that they arrived there with a team. It was a team effort. There was an awful lot of planning that went, in, that, that went into the whole journey. There was an awful lot of, of work by team members to allow each person to make it to the very top of the world. And when we consider the journey of faith, when we consider the fact that one day when we arrive in the presence of God, it will not be because we arrive there on a journey alone. You see, God doesn't save His people and call us out of darkness into His marvelous light to just journey alone. He doesn't call us to be lone rangers. He doesn't call us to be just going about this thing of the faith without the community of the local church, 
When you consider the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote this very letter to a church in the city of Ephesus, and this very letter would have been circulated to other local churches in other surrounding cities. He was writing from prison, and he understood his audience. Again, the city of Ephesus was known as the gateway to Asia. This particular city was known as the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. It was full of trade and athletics, but at the center of this city, it was focused around a temple, the temple of Artemis or Diana, a multi-breasted goddess full of all sorts of sexual sin and perversion. And yet, in the midst of this vanity fair of the ancient world, God had placed a church. And this local church was, was being led by elders. This local church was full of brothers and sisters in Christ. And they were to journey in the faith together. They were to be under authority. They were to be held accountable. The gifts that God gives to His church were put on display for a purpose in the context of the church at Ephesus. And so as we consider the language in Scripture that the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the called out assembly, they are called this all through the Word of God. All through the New Testament we see language that the church is the family of God. We see in 1 Timothy 5, we see the, the reference there and the imagery of God as Father. And we are referenced as children. We see the church as a body in 1 Corinthians 12. We see the church as an assembly in Hebrews 10.25. We see the church as referenced as a flock in 1 Peter 5.2. We see that the church is a building in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. And so when we think about the church, we don't need to think about the church as plan B, plan C, plan D, or something else. The church of Jesus Christ is not an option for us. And so often it is in conference settings, and I love conferences, and I don't mean to just always say negative things about conferences. I mean, we, we have the G3 conference, and we have all these other conferences, and Founders Ministries has different conferences. Conferences aren't a bad thing. But God's will for us is not that we would just roam around to different conferences. But God's will is that we would be discipled in the context of a local church under authority, in submission, in good standing, and that we would be held accountable by brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we would be discipled by the elders of the church, that we would be disciplined by the elders of the church when necessary. This is God's plan for His people. But today, the church is being redefined and repackaged into a self-help center or a spiritual shopping mall or a social networking pool or a psychological treatment center or, even worse, entertainment stages. And so what we need today is we need to get back to the basics. We talk about social justice. We talk about the issues surrounding us. And I'm going to drive that point home in just a few moments but I want us to think about how it is that we oppose these isms. How it is that we oppose these false teachings. How it is that we stand against heresy and heretics. It is through strong, vibrant, healthy, joyful, 
growing, local, tangible, visible New Testament churches. This is God's plan for his people. This is God's will for us. I don't have time to unpack, unfortunately, everything that we've read, but for context's sake, it was necessary to read everything. I want to briefly just summarize, if we can, verses 1 through 11. Again, you see here in this text, you see that he's driving at unity in the church. The unity in the church is essential. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called. One hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the emphasis is the oneness of the church, the unity of the church, and that must be maintained. In verses 7 through 11, we see the gifts of the church. If you notice there again, but grace was given to each one of us. Again, grace is not a work of man. Grace is a gift of God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Again, we see this this whole thing of Jew and Gentile together, bond and free together, male and female together, rich and poor together, the context of the church, unity. But then the, the issue of Christ's gift. He gave gifts to men. Again, he's quoting from the Psalm, Psalm 68, 18, that he might fill all things. But notice the emphasis, he gave, he gave, he gave. And so when we think about that, we need to see the fact that he gave these gifts for a purpose. And so this idea of coffee shop, church, this idea of just sitting around with a latte on the Lord's Day, sitting there with YouTube, watching Vody, Paul Washer, John Piper, whoever it might be that's on your playlist, sipping your latte, enjoying the Lord's Day. Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy t-shirt on. But my question is, can you worship in that context? And you would be right if you said yes. Can you worship exclusively in that context? You would be wrong if you said yes. And the point is, and the question before you, if that's your mindset, and it is with so many millennials, we don't need to always be throwing rocks at millennials. We need to try to disciple millennials. But the idea is that that's the cool thing. We don't need to be under authority. Authority is a bad thing. I want to do church my way. I want to do church in the coffee shop. When was the last time you saw anyone baptized in the coffee shop? When was the last time that you saw the Lord's Supper and the the Lord's table fenced properly in Starbucks? When was the last time that you've seen church discipline brought before the congregation in Starbucks? And the issue is that we can't have church that way. That we must have church together. And that there is a reason for this gathering together. And so the body is essential. The body is essential. 
Isolation is a dangerous thing. Isolation creates distance from the church body. Isolation kills community. Isolation makes a person and family vulnerable to Satan's attacks. Isolation can cause a person to make improper decisions based on fleshly-centered motives. And the list goes on. And so we need to think critically about such matters. I met a gentleman some time back who said to me, I want to talk to you. In fact, it was at a G3 conference. He said, I live just north of the city and I want to meet you for coffee. So we got together and we sat and talked and he was describing the fact that he had been sensing a call to missions in a local church that sent him out onto the mission field. He went out on the mission field and he became convinced of reformed theology as a missionary came back to the city of Atlanta, did not feel that it was wise to go back to his local church because it was Arminian in its understanding of the doctrines of grace and and all of this standing opposed to Reformed teaching. And so his idea was that he was just going to remain isolated and sit around in a coffee shop. And as we were talking, he said, I said, well, how long have you been here? I'm thinking maybe four weeks. And he was telling me like three years. And then as he went on and continued to talk, he said, I just can't find a church. I live in Atlanta. I know that there are not loads of really solid churches in Atlanta, but I know that there are some. And here's what he said. He said, I feel like I'm just struggling with questioning my call to missions. He said, if I'm honest, I'm struggling with whether or not I'm actually a Christian. And as he went on and on and on, I listened. And then when it was my turn to talk, I said, the reason that you feel like you're not a Christian is one of two things. Either you're not a Christian or You are a Christian, and you've been left to drift ever so slightly, just drifting off-center, drifting theologically, drifting in temptation, and there's not been the church to bring you back to the point of center, bring you back to the right path, hold you accountable. That's specifically what we see here taking place in this text. You see, in this text, in verse number 11, and he gave, that's the idea, he gave these gifts. He gave the apostles. There's big A apostle and little a apostle, and we don't have time to get into all of that, but if you want a full-fledged definition of the difference between the two, you can talk to Vodi about the landscape of Zambia, and you can talk about how there are plenty of people walking around claiming to be big A apostles when they're really not big A apostles. He gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Work is not a bad thing. Work is not a bad thing as far as life in general, and work is not a bad thing within the context of the church. And the word equip here is actually a medical term whereby the focus is like that of setting a bone. And so the idea is that the the pastor, shepherd, the pastor, teacher is to 
equip the saints, set things in order, set the bones properly, disciple, and to prepare the saints for the work of ministry. And all of this is for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the key. This is the key. And so, when we look at this, we see the gifts, and all of these gifts are essential. Again, we could get into all of the aspects of the apostle and the prophet, and then again, that era passing away, and now the evangelist and the shepherd teacher, again, pastor teacher being one office. But then as we move from the gifts, we see the purpose of the gifts. The purpose of God's gifting His church is so that we would be equipped. So that we would be equipped to serve. So that we would be equipped to work. So that we would be equipped to exercise our gifts in a local, tangible, visible New Testament church. And so that should be the focus. I received an email from a gentleman in South Africa some time back, and he was commenting on an article that I had written about the church. And he said these words to me in an email. It was a short email. He said, it's an excellent article, sobering assessment of the present bride, sadly. Where is your church? Question mark. I'm not attending church because there is no river flowing. So we have this idea that if we can't find a church that meets all of our necessities, that hits all of the points that we need, then we're simply not going to go to church. We're going to have church in the living room. We don't need elders. We don't need a community. We don't need the church in the local sense. But then here's another danger. The other danger is that when we do actually commit ourselves to church, oftentimes it's the commitment of just attending church. The idea that we will come and watch the preaching and watch the singing and watch the attending and watch the giving and watch the going and watch the serving and watch the learning, but we're not going to engage. But you see, the, the job of the pastor is to equip the saints so that the the people actually do the work of ministry so that we engage in ministry so that we're not just watchers of the word, we're doers of the word. One of the tragedies today is what we see in our culture at large. We are club happy people. There's a club for everything under the sun. If you can think it up, there's a club for it. American Red Cross, Salvation Army, Kidney Foundation, all these organizations like the NRA, the YMCA, the AARP, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts. I don't know if there is a such thing as Boy Scouts anymore. Maybe I need to update my notes here. Uh, the Ronald McDonald Foundation, Homes for Our Troops, National Military Family Association, the Special Olympics, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, the Chess Club, the Rowing Club, the Bowling Club, the Dance Club, the Bird Watching Club, the Horse Riding Club, the Dog Training Club, the Yacht Club, and every other club you could possibly imagine. And so when we think about that type of cultural landscape in America, there's this idea that we minimize the importance and the essential aspects of the local church. 
I was talking to a man the other day when we were purchasing our van. He was a salesman. We were driving. I was doing the test drive. He's sitting next to me. My son's in the back behind us. And he, start, he says, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He says, oh, I used, to, I used to work in youth ministry. I said, well, what's going on now? He said, well, uh, years ago, that was years ago, and my daughter got really, really involved in dance, and she needed to be more focused on that. And so we moved to be closer to where she could be engaged in her dance. And so when we moved over time, I just became convinced that I don't need to be really involved and committed to one church. So we just kind of go to different churches. And he said, my son now is a bit older, and he's now playing in a praise band in two different churches. And that's just kind of the way we do things. I like the preaching at this church, and I like the singing and the worship at this church. And so we just kind of rotate around. My blood pressure was starting to get a little elevated at that point, and my wife was across the road at, Star, at, at uh, Chick-fil-A with the rest of the family waiting on me to finish up this whole deal, and I really felt the need to preach this sermon maybe to him. I didn't have time, so I just tried to press a bit, and then once we got out, finished the paperwork, when we got in the van and it was just me and my son, I said, son, I want to tell you something. What you heard that man say is a tragedy. It's an utter tragedy. I said, son, what I want for you is I want you to love the local church. To love God so much that as a result, if you love Christ, if you love Christ so much, then how can you not love the bride of Christ so much? Getting a little closer to home, there are over 91,000 parachurch ministries in America. With revenue exceeding $1.8 billion per year. Assets over $4 billion. Are parachurch ministries a bad thing? It's not a trick question. The answer is no. Founders Ministries is, in many ways, a para-church ministry. Para, coming alongside the local church. Para-church ministry is not a bad thing, but the tail can't wag the dog. And we have this idea sometimes, now we're getting a little closer to home, maybe closer to our own front porch a bit, right? We have this idea that, if you're really going to get excited about ministry, if you're really going to be just fired up and on the front lines of the battle for the gospel, then you need to give yourself to a parachurch ministry. That the local church is not for you. That's boring. That's not true. That is absolutely not true. Equipped for the work of ministry, ministry is not for the spiritually elite it's not for the gospel seal team. 
Ministry is for the local church. It's for the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's for every single person that makes up the body. And so we should take it seriously. If we look here at this text, we see a couple of things as it pertains to the equipping work of the pastor. Notice, if you will, the shepherding ministry. It involves a couple of things. First of all, we see this, that, that this work and this equipping, it builds us up. It builds up the body of Christ, but then notice verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there's this unifying work in shepherding. There's this, there's this idea of growing in the knowledge of God. Many people believe that Christianity, that Christianity is this mindless religiosity. You come to church and you look for the, the goosies to pop out. And if you're visiting churches and you hear a certain song by a certain vocalist and goosebumps break out on your arms and your neck, that's the church for you and your family. But you're not going to be challenged to dig into the Word, challenged to have an exercise biblical discernment. These are extremely important matters. Growing in the knowledge of God is key. This is key. Jonathan Edwards once said these words, number 28 in his resolutions, resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, so constantly, so frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. He wasn't writing that as a 70-year-old man. He wasn't writing that as a 50-year-old man. He was writing that between the ages of 18 and 20 years of age. Alistair Begg said it this way, we must understand that Christianity is not served by mindlessness. I remember when I served 52 miles south of the campus of Southern Seminary when I was a student. I was pastoring a small country church in the middle of nowhere. You say, I, I know where the middle of nowhere is. No, they should have a sign here. You've officially arrived in the middle of of nowhere. When you have to travel 10 miles to get to a service station that looks like it's straight out of 1950, you're in the middle of nowhere. And so the entire church was made up of farmers, barely a high school education, most below a high school education. And I remember that I put a challenge out to the church to study and to dig and to memorize and to meditate on God's Word. And there was an 80-year-old, uneducated tobacco farmer who stood in front of the church on a Sunday evening and quoted by memory after a month's work in the text of John chapter 3, the entire chapter. And we say, I just can't remember anything anymore. I once could memorize stuff, but I can't memorize anything anymore. An 80-year-old, uneducated farmer. You see, we should be pressing the church as pastors, and the church should be growing to maturity. I'm going to make a statement here that I want you to pay close attention to. To remain in a state of spiritual immaturity... Is not anything to brag about. 
it's actually sinful. To remain ignorant is sinful. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to be discipled. I'm not going to memorize. I'm not going to do these things. But if I asked you what your social security number is right now, you could spit it out. What's your password to your email? How much horsepower is your truck? We memorize what we want to memorize. We know what we want to know. But that's not all that the pastor is called to do. The pastor is called to drive the church to spiritual maturity so that he would be a mature man. Manhood, biblical manhood and womanhood matters. Notice this. Verse 14. So that, here's the purpose. All of this is true. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that we would not be led astray. The danger of wind and waves of culture, the danger of false doctrine and false gospels, the danger of deceitful schemes. Social justice is a deceitful scheme. That's what it should be called. And the job of a pastor is to speak that with love. But to speak it, to be as gracious as we can, but to tell the truth. A pastor's job is not to just be a talking head giving a commentary on the Lord's Day. The pastor's job is to guard the gospel. The pastor's job is to be a shepherd with the flock. The pastor's job is to guard the people from deceitful schemes. And if a man with the open word, is unable to push back on deceitful schemes, then you read in the Scriptures the qualifications of an elder, then he can't be an elder. Now that doesn't mean that you have to be a reckless man. It doesn't mean that you have to be up punching people in the nose and turning your church upside down and creating havoc in the church community. That, that, that's not what it's talking about. And we see people like that today. You see people that have blogs, they call themselves Christian bloggers in the polemical world of evangelicalism, but it's really nothing more than a tabloid. But a pastor is to preach the word and disciple people and push back on deceitful schemes. George Whitfield was once preaching a sermon and he stopped in the middle of the sermon to give an illustration. And he stopped to give an illustration to make a point. And he said, I want to tell you the story about the Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675. He was acquainted with a Mr. Butterton, the actor. So you have the Archbishop who's talking to an actor and Whitfield's preaching a sermon. And he says, I know this story and I want to tell you the story. So the Archbishop is having a conversation with the actor. Says one day the Archbishop said to Butterton, the actor... 
Pray inform me, Mr. Butterton. What is the reason that you actors on stage can affect your congregations with speaking of things imaginary as if they were real? While we in the church speak of things real, which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary. Why, my Lord, says Butterton to actor? The reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Right then, the illustration came to a stop. And George Whitfield said, I will bawl. I will shout loudly. I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. Here's what he was saying. There is a time to speak with gentleness. And there is a time to raise your voice with intensity. And when it comes to a deceitful scheme, we don't need men whispering nicely in the pulpits and local churches about dangerous schemes. Let me ask you a question. Some time ago I was on the beach with my family on vacation. A couple of my family members out, including my children, in the water and the waves. We're out there, I'm throwing the ball with my dad, hanging out on the beach, joint family vacation, and suddenly I see my wife and she has that look of panic and she's jumping up and, she's, and I'm looking and she's screaming and yelling. Now keep in mind, there are other people just kind of hanging out on the beach on their blankets, enjoying the sunshine, listening to the radio, hanging out with their children, and my wife is interrupting everything. And I looked. And there was a dorsal fin coming right down the waves, right towards the children. In fact, it was between the beach and where my kids were. Well, Mama says that's not good. So we're going to disrupt everything if, if, if we need to, to make sure that we make the point clearly known. There's danger now, what good does it do for us to say that social justice is a deceitful scheme? It's one of the most, if not the worst, deceitful scheme in our lifetime to face the evangelical church, but we simply whisper nicely about it. We don't want to disrupt anyone. We don't want to offend anyone. Social justice is not a biblical concept. Social justice is a dangerous, deceitful politically motivated scheme. This is not an issue just for conferences or seminaries or Bible colleges or debates on YouTube. This is a local church issue and if it's not dealt with in the context of a local church, then God help us. Pastors were called to equip the body. Pastors are called to disciple the people to maturity. Pastors are called to guard the gospel. We are called to point out the winds of false doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, the work of the devil. And so we must do so. When we have people that are raising the stakes, suggesting that social justice is 
a modifier to and, 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 the, and, and connected to the front of the gospel so that if you don't believe social justice, then you can't embrace the true gospel. Therefore, you're not a brother or sister in Christ. That is massively dangerous. This is the slippery slope away from the gospel, down into the cesspool of heresy. And we can't sit back and just allow it to go on unchecked. Social social justice is designed as a political agenda that will enable specific people to come to the aid of the oppressed, keep the people divided, representing the oppressed, and driving the train in a very, very calculated, lucrative agenda. Social justice is an agenda. It's an idea. Ideas create agendas. Words matter. Ideas matter. Methods matter. The social justice train really has three boxcars as I see it. It's very complex in culture, and it's very complex in the evangelical culture as well. These three boxcars include the idea of racism, boxcar number one, oppression of people of color, but as Vodius pointed out, specifically black people. Boxcar number two, the oppression of women. We've held back women in culture, we've held back women in the evangelical culture, so now we need to apologize to everyone and empower them. That's box car number two. And we are absolutely playing the ostrich game with our heads in the sand if we think that there is not box car number three, which is gay Christianity. You think that when we legalize homosexual quote unquote marriage, that they're going to sit back and watch the racism and the women card being played, and they're going to sit back and say, we're not going to use that playbook. They're going to use the very same playbook. And so this is a very dangerous agenda. The term woke. Now there's a, there's a book out by Eric Mason, Woke Church. I've read the book. I do not recommend for you to read the book. If you want to read the book, fine. But I want to encourage you to think critically and read the book through the lens of Scripture because the term woke itself, that should offend us. A term that was taken out of the black nationalist movement attached to the church of Jesus Christ. The idea of woke is that you don't know what you don't know. You've not been awakened to the reality. So people like me that say that systemic racism and white privilege, that that's a myth, that it's a a political methodology that's rooted in a, a, a political and politically charged machine to do something, not only out there in culture, but now also in here in the local church, that since I don't see white privilege, and since I don't see systemic racism, I'm not yet woke. But now, it's not just that I don't see it, here's the reality. We have people now that are there that can say, since you can't see it, I see it for you. And since you can't see it and I see it for you, here's where you're wrong. 
So now you need to apologize, you need to right the wrongs of the past, and you need to help empower all of those that have been oppressed because of your and your ancestors' actions. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about in my theological circles, when I hear people say, you know, you can't hear God speaking to you, but I can hear God speaking to me. And so since you can't hear God speaking to you and I can hear God speaking to me, God told me to tell you. You know what that's called? It's called religious manipulation. So we say that about the whole God told me to tell you. Evidently God can't talk to you, He can talk to me. So I'm going to tell you what God needs to communicate to you. Now we make fun of that. And we say that's wrong. But then when it comes to the idea of woke church, the idea that we can't see something, but now since you can't see it, God's enabled me to see it, so now I'm going to be the one to tell you where you're wrong. It's religious manipulation. And it should be called that. Intersectionality, again, has already been discussed. It was coined in 1989 by a, a, a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw who was an activist, a radical feminist who used this methodology to aid the oppressed. And now we're starting to do that within the church culture. If you're a woman and you're Southern Baptist, you've been oppressed. Because you're a woman and because you're Southern Baptist, you've been held back from the pulpit. That's intersectionality. We need, to, we need to apologize for that. We need to empower women. This is an old playbook out of the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s. The 60s and 70s, they had a, a playbook and it would say things like this. A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Follow that train of thought? That's what the feminists were teaching in the 60s and 70s. They would say things like this. Women, women need to have sex before marriage and a job after marriage. That was being taught in the 60s and 70s. And now... We have people that are apologizing to Beth Moore in the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not talking about just people that you don't know. I'm talking about people that you do know. And they're apologizing to Beth Moore, and they're embracing Beth Moore, and they're inviting her to conferences that were once considered to be the most conservative groups. And then when we say hey, I think that we need to rethink this whole thing about promoting Beth Moore and inviting her to our platform and that type of thing. And they say, oh man, listen, you need to, you need to just expand your understanding of complementarianism. Hang on, I'm not talking about complementarianism. I'm talking about mysticism, modern day prophecy, on my back porch hearing visions from God and seeing visions from God over coffee so now I can go to my conference and I can teach women in the Southern Baptist Convention modern day prophecy. 
they think we're talking about complementarianism. We need to stand firm on complementarianism, but have we turned our backs on mysticism? This is a massive problem. This is social justice. This is a massive problem. Now, I don't have time to say everything that I would love to say about social justice, but as we come to a close on this matter, I want you to think critically about the fact that if the social justice train is not stopped, it will not only have a radical impact on the evangelical world, which means it will impact local churches, but it will have a massive life altering change on society as you and I know it. Massive, life-altering change. Think this way. Follow the logic. If black people are victims of systemic racism, then the LGBT community will argue that they too are victims of systemic oppression. If the LGBT lifestyle is now legal, then how dare we suggest that it's sinful? And if abortion is legal, then how dare we call out a mother's choice as murderous? And before long, before long, the powers that be take the whole train of social justice and they start to craft hate speech law around that type of idea so then to say what I'm saying in this very pulpit this morning could cause me to be carted off to the local jail. Restriction of the freedom of speech and all of this is coming right down the center road of social justice. So the proponents of social justice are playing the cards of ethnic pragmatism and gender pragmatism and class pragmatism and sexual pragmatism. But I want the Word of God in the local, tangible, visible New Testament church. Give me the book, the holy, the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant Word. The proponents of social justice are using methods such as intersectionality and critical race theory and Systemic racism and white privilege, but I want the Word of God. Consider the preaching of the Reformers. Between 1510 and 1546, Luther preached approximately 3,000 sermons. He preached several times each week, sometimes two or more times a day. You say, what was the Reformation? How was it fueled? Preaching of the Word. Luther wasn't playing at preaching. He had a high view of Scripture. Consider Calvin's preaching. He began the series in Acts in 1549. He completed it in 1554. He preached 46 sermons through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 186 sermons. He preached 86 sermons through the pastoral epistles. His series through Galatians was 43 sermons. He preached 48 sermons through Ephesians. 159 sermons through Job. His series through Deuteronomy was 200 sermons long. He labored through Isaiah in 353 sermons. His series through Genesis was 123 sermons. And so we get a glimpse at the preaching of the Reformers. And they weren't just preaching in conferences. They were preaching in the local church. They were discipling people. Through Calvin's ministry, he would send out hundreds, hundreds 
of church planting missionaries. And some would would never return back to the church to give an account of their ministry because they would give their very blood for the cause of Christ. You want to raise up a generation that will really impact a culture, that will drive back deceitful schemes like social justice, then we must be committed to the book. We must be committed to the pulpit ministry. We must be committed to the local, tangible, visible New Testament church. So put yourself brothers and sisters, in a church. And put yourself under the leadership of faithful pastors and study and grow. Some people have come to me in this conference and said, it's just so difficult. I understand all this terminology like intersectionality and systemic racism and critical race theory and and cultural Marxism and this so complex. I understand. It's complex for me as well. But once upon a time, a word came across your mind and heart called propitiation. You don't use that at the bank. You don't use that at the car dealership most of the time. Probably do as well sometimes. But you gave yourself to study words because words matter. So remember, words and ideas and theology matter. Discipleship matters. The local church matters. Maturity in Christ matters. If you were to travel to Mount Everest, pay $25,000 for a permit, get into really, really good shape and climb to the top of the world at some point at some point they're about the death zone you're going to look off the edge and you know what you're going to see you're going to see ice picks and you're going to see articles of clothing perhaps a helmet in the ice and beneath the ice there are bodies of people who never made it home and there are people go through local churches, make a profession of faith in Christ, are not properly discipled and guarded by pastors, and they're led astray by winds of doctrine and deceitful schemes, and they never make it. May that not, may it not, may it not be the testimony of your church.
may it not be. So therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in Christ Jesus. May God bless you.